This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, the chair of the White House Council of Economic Advisors under President George W. Bush, Glenn Hubbard, discusses his book, The Wall and the Bridge, Fear and Opportunity in Disruption's Wake. He argues that government and business will need to invest more in American workers to offset job losses due to technology advances and globalization. The problem is, it doesn't really matter whether you lose your job to foreign competition, domestic competition, or to technology, which is a far bigger disruptor uh, of the labor market. We need to do more to help people get that next job. TAA was talked about by politicians really more when they wanted to expand trade than actually help people left behind. So we've poured gasoline on the fire of those who want to protect jobs. He's interviewed by Harvard University economics professor and former International Monetary Fund chief economist Kenneth Rogoff. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to our, our viewers. My name is Ken Rogoff. I'm a professor at Harvard University. And I'm here today to speak to our Glenn Hubbard, who I'm going to call Glenn, uh, who's written this extremely brave an interesting book called uh, the, Bri- the Wall and the Bridge. Uh, it was just published by Yale University Press in, 19, uh, in 2022. And uh, Professor Hubbard takes us through really what globalization's done in ripping apart American policy and politics and how to bring it back together. And he points to really these wall things that have come up. I don't think he quite meant Trump's border wall, but rather protectionism, uh, things to try to block ourselves off, to try to restrict trade, to restrict um, people's uh, choice. And on the other hand, having to recognize that it's very disruptive when technology moves fast, globalization moves fast. And uh, his his, uh, metaphor, the bridge, is we need to find ways to get people from one place to another. We are not going to stop the world from changing something that's you know all too painfully apparent in the geopolitics today. Uh, I've known uh, Glenn for a very long time. He's a leading scholar in public finance and a number of other fields. Uh, he served with distinction. Uh, in the council, as head of the Council of Economic Advisors uh, in the in the early 2000s under President Bush, and uh, has since been dean of the Columbia Business School and written many important papers. And I think uh, I've really appreciated Glenn how in recent years you've tried to create a center, not a center in the Republican Party, a center in the United States, and you written with uh, others who tried to do the same. Uh, for example, Tim, Tim Geithner, who, of course, was the Treasury Secretary under uh, President Obama. So um, 
let's let's dive into your book. I, I want to assure viewers we are going to come back to some of the broader issues of how uh, what's going on in geopolitics touches on Glenn's thesis. I think I think actually this question of how do we come together has become very urgent because it's one thing to say, well, you know, we uh, hate the atrocities being committed in Ukraine and we'd like to see President Putin soundly defeated. And it's another thing, what's your long-term strategy for doing that? Uh, how long are we going to keep sanctions on? What other things are we going to do? What are we going to do with our energy policy? Uh, we'll come to that towards the end because I think really this overarching theme in uh, Professor Hubbard's book is really how to find a constructive solution to our problem. So, so uh, Glenn, welcome. And uh, if I can just, you know, start you off with what motivated you to write this book, which, you know, you see books today that are sort of written to the right and get viewers on the right, uh, people on the right to buy it. And you see even more books on the left to have uh, viewers on, on the left. I, I think at times the bestseller list has had nine out of 10 of the books about, you know, uh, problems with President Trump. You've written something that doesn't, you know, clearly go at either audience. You're trying to create a center. And I'm, I'm just very interested in what motivated you. And even if you had early reaction yet to share that with us. Well, well, thanks, Ken, and thanks for your thoughtful introduction. Uh, I was motivated really by three things, an economic concern, a political concern, and, and actually a personal journey. On, on the economic concern, you know, we have been through a period, you know, as you suggested, where um, there's a bit of a, a tug of war in our political process over growth. And growth is something that we usually think of in economics as being about science and technology and about organizations to accommodate it, I'm really worried about politics. Uh, and I'm very worried that we're in an environment where the political process has proposed protectionism of a variety of ways, of firms, of international markets, of jobs, that really goes against uh, growth. Uh, and that leads me to sort of the, the political observation, which is, that growth is like the head side of a coin. It's the one we all love to talk about as economists, policymakers love it, business people do. But every coin with a head has a tail. And a tail is disruption. And there isn't a serious model of economic growth that doesn't also entail enormous amounts of disruption. And I think the political process hears cries for help, if you will, the demand side, and the supply side from politics has to take one of two forms. It could be walls, and those are really easy. I'm going to protect you from something you don't like. Sounds great. Politicians on the left and the right are both doing it. It doesn't work, as you and I both know. Uh, the other alternative in the political process is harder. Uh, it's about building bridges. And a bridge, as you said, you know, takes you to somewhere or brings you back. In econ speak, that's about opportunity. It's about reform of social insurance. We once did this in a grand way in our country in the 19th century and in the 20th century, and I think we can do it again. The third is a personal journey. You know, in September of 1977, which is a, a chronicled event I have in the book, the city of Youngstown exhibited closure of all of its steel plants. In fact, all on a single day. 
September 19th, 1977, and never really recovered. That very month, and I think that very day, I was in my first course in economics, principles of economics. And if I think about the arc for me since that time, it's been pretty good, uh, as it has been for you and many business people and probably many viewers of this show. But at the same time, the things that were so good to me, technological advances and globalization that magnified my ability to do things have disrupted the lives of others. I, I take economics, going all the way back to Adam Smith, as being partly a moral discipline. My teacher, your colleague, Ben Friedman, you know, wrote a very powerful book on the moral consequences of economic growth. Growing societies are healthy societies. That personal journey has always stuck with me and forced me to put the pen to the paper. Glenn, if I could just pick up on some of the interesting things you said. So I would make an observation you're about walls that you said, you know, if there, there are very few things that like just really all economists agree on, but one of them is that free trade uh, is basically good. You need to protect the losers. We'll come back to that. And uh, President Trump put up remarkable barriers to trade. Uh, China's an interesting question we might come back to, but he was doing it to Canada, uh, doing it to France. And some of these barriers to trade are the things President Biden has not taken down. I mean, I think a lot of people viewed this as uh, President Trump taking a page out of the Democratic Party playbook because the Republican Party had always stood for free trade. And uh, I, I wonder you know, what you think about that. But also, I think a lot of... Uh, a lot of people might look at the U.S. and say the problem is there aren't enough pillows or mattresses to fall on. There's not enough social insurance. You mentioned social insurance, but I think uh, certainly when a lot of my progressive friends look at the problem with free trade, it's not, it's not just that they want to keep the current jobs. It's that they feel those who lost their jobs have sort of been betrayed because our our social insurance system is so weak. And and you're you know one of the world's leading experts on public finance. Do, do you want to kind of ex, maybe I'm jumping ahead too much, but it, about your bridges of you know where you see there should be social insurance, uh, you know, many, in its many forms, and where you think there's scope for helping people retrain get other jobs? What do you think works? Well, it's a great question, uh, Ken. And, and to start on, on trade itself, or as a larger version, just globalization of, of markets, I, I think part of the problem here is if you go back to the Queen of England's famous question during the financial crisis to the LSE, of why did nobody see it coming? Yeah, you write about that. And, and you write about that in the book. Yeah, and I think the Queen might, if she were sitting in our conversation today, say, how could you have something like globalization that in the American setting came on faster than people thought, had very long-lasting implications, had extreme geographical uh, consequences, and then have economists be surprised uh, at the rise of Donald Trump or other populist politicians? You know, I, I think it speaks of while as a profession, we've always understood gainers compensating losers. It's in every freshman textbook. I'm sure it's in the lecture every 
viewer heard uh, on international trade, we haven't really focused on it. Now, in the book, I talk about two kinds of bridges. You asked about social insurance, which I um, you know, term as a reconnection bridge uh, in, in the book. Most of our social insurance programs in the United States today fall into two buckets. The vast dollars uh, of them are spent on uh, old age programs, on uh, Medicare and Social Security. Where we have social insurance in the labor market, it's largely designed for temporary layoffs. Our programs going back to the 1930s, like unemployment insurance, are designed like that. This is obviously something very different. We're talking about long-term job loss. To me, mm-hmm. the first goal is preparing people for the next job, not putting them on the dole. But we do need social insurance that's keyed toward longer-term job loss. So I talk about personal reemployment accounts as an example in the book of you know, much larger individual focus uh, on getting people back to work, as well as increased support for work its, itself uh, in things like in the U.S. context, the earned income tax credit. And then one other form of social insurance, if you could use the term more broadly, is also to think about communities. You know, like like most economists, I have always been skeptical of place-based aid. Uh, Normally, the idea of bringing people to jobs is what makes sense. But for a variety of reasons, mobility, geographical mobility in the country is not what we think. And we may need to think hard about adjusting assistance to communities aimed at restarting businesses, a kind of social insurance for places, uh, if, if you will. So I think we have to- Let, let me just that. expand for viewers on one thing you're saying, Glenn. I think it's incredibly important. Uh, we had always had the view that uh, when we're buffeted by globalization, people would move. I grew up in Rochester, New York, and I'm gonna bring you, I'm gonna bring you back to that later. Uh, you talk about it fascinating in the book about what George Eastman did in Rochester, New York. But uh, when I grew up in Rochester, New York, it was the Silicon Valley of its day. It had Eastman Kodak and film and cameras, uh, Xerox and copy machines, Bausch and Loam and Bausch, Bausch and Laum in uh, optics and fine equipment. And it was incredibly prosperous. And Rochester just got hollowed out by globalization, uh, competition from Japanese, uh, one company after another uh, went under. When I grew, when I was growing up, the Greater Rochester was 600,000 people. I don't know the number exactly today, but it might be 300,000 people. Uh, but, you know, it was, it was very painful. It was absolutely globalization, but a lot of people moved and resettled, my, my friends. And, I, I, and when we look at the statistics from that period, there was a lot of moving. I think, uh, the statistics still today that 30% of Americans live in a state where they weren't born compared to Europe, where I think it's 3% of Europeans live in a country where they weren't born. But that has really changed. The statistics on mobility have gotten drastically worse. And that, that's absolutely, you know, as you're saying, you, you said it in a very, you know, uh, understated way, I think, the mobility has gone down. And so when... Youngstown, which you, you have a beautiful opening chapter in the book about this, you know, when, when it goes under, the people are just stuck there and in this place that's been hollowed out. And uh, that's, that's you know, uh, a major change that's taken place. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you. I just wanted to no, expand I, I on agree. a point you made. You say, uh, Ken, and, you know, an example of where I think we've gone wrong in all this 
is our efforts. So there's a program dating actually to the Kennedy administration's uh, opening to globalization called Trade Adjustment Assistance. And the idea of Trade Adjustment Assistance, or TAA in Washington speak, is pretty intuitive. If you lose your job as a result of foreign competition, you should get some assistance. The problem is it doesn't really matter whether you lose your job to foreign competition or domestic competition or to technology, which is a far bigger disruptor uh, of the labor market. We need to do more to help people get that next job. TAA was talked about by politicians really more when they wanted to expand trade than actually help people left behind. So we've kind of poured gasoline on the fire of those who want to protect jobs because we really haven't offered much of of an alternative. I I think that alternative is there. It's right out of Econ 101, but we've got to go back to it. So why do you think uh, walls have become so popular politically? I mean, in the old days, it used to be yeah, Congress always wanted protectionism, but the president would stop it. And it was kind of understood that as long as the Congress people could campaign and tell their constituents, well, I, I, I tried, but the president wouldn't allow it. And everyone kind of understood that the, the bigger game was to keep the economy rolling, to have technology move. And then I, I would say particularly with you, you certainly speak of this interesting episode when you were uh, head of the Council of Economic Advisors, you had just arrived. Uh, you march in to President Bush to say, you know, here are all the great reasons the steel tariff you're putting in to protect, I think it was Pennsylvania, is just a terrible idea. Of course, Pennsylvania is a big swing state in the election. He understood that. And you put on a map and you said, here are the jobs you're going to protect. Here are the where are the way more jobs you're going to lose. And you lost the argument. And, um, you know, but yet uh, that was an exception, not a rule. I think a lot of times you were very successful in arguing for free trade. And other people who've been head of the Council of Economic Advisors often speak about that. But that's been one of the areas where economists have really uh, upheld uh, principles. But boy, has that changed. And why do you think it is? What do you think we can do to bring it back? Or I guess that's not a precise statement. What do you think we should be doing? What should we be bringing back? How should we be expanding trade, but building bridges at the same time? Well, it's a great question. You know, as economists, we're all pretty good at reminding politicians or students or the general public about the value of trade. I don't think that's the issue. I, I don't think President Bush disagreed with me on any of the economic arguments. In fact, what he told me after was, you know, I heard everything you said, but you didn't give me any way to help the people in Wheeling, West Virginia and in Pennsylvania. And I think part of the problem and the ease of walls for a politician is it's very seductive to be able to go into a community like Youngstown and say, you know what? I'm going to bring the steel mills back or President Trump telling coal country, I'm going to bring coal back. You know, it sounds nice to say I'm going to restore the past. It's very comforting to people. And the problem is bridges are harder to design and to do, but they're there. So, for example, if President Bush had thought perhaps more about programs to help communities and individuals left behind or if I or other economists had helped him think about that, 
we might have gotten a very different outcome. And as I said, in our country, we've traditionally uh, had bigger ideas here. You know, in the middle of the Civil War, Lincoln's move for a land-grant college system was in part about opportunity and in part about helping an economy transition from an agrarian society to a manufacturing society. We once were good at this, uh, and we need to go back and think of it. Otherwise, we're just going to be begging for so, walls. But, okay, so but let, let, me, let me make you be more concrete, though. Um, what exactly should we be doing? So do you favor free community colleges? Uh, do you favor, uh, you know, subsidizing employers who, you know, hire someone for the first time? I mean, it's, it's absolutely sounds good. But I say, again, my many progressive friends in Cambridge would push back saying you haven't found programs that work. And until you find things that work, thank you. You know, we're going to protect these jobs. Well, let me start just quickly on the protected jobs thing. You know, I teach in a business school, a very good one. And when I talk to students about the job market, I'm always struck with many of the jobs they'd most like to have weren't even around 30 years ago. Uh, and even for people in the general public, that is true. So there's an old expression of who monitors the monitor or who watches the watcher. Mm -hmm. Who in Washington mm -hmm. is going to decide which jobs are the ones to protect, you know, we have very large gross flows in our labor market, and that's very, very healthy. A lot of jobs are created, a lot of jobs are destroyed. The net is a positive number on average. That's the way the labor market. Uh, but but that speaks work. to social. That speaks to social insurance having much. Well, deeper and that's social. and that's what I'm going to get. What to. do you do on start, top of that? Yeah, I want to start with preparation. So when you ask specifically. Mm. Community colleges are an interesting way to tease out the difference between, I think, more rigorous thinking and sloppy thinking. So sloppy thinking is the idea that free tuition is the answer. If you go back to the setup of the uh, land-grant colleges, the idea was to build things and fund them. In modern terms, we call that block grants. Uh, Austin Goolsby and Melissa Carney and I had suggested uh, a couple of years ago, a significant federal block grant for community colleges that was keyed to a set of metrics where one could measure. You know, the real issue, as many people know, in community colleges is not just getting people in the door, uh, but getting them out the door uh, at mm -hmm. the other end. So we, we could do this at a time when many states have cut back their funding. So free tuition really isn't the answer. Community colleges, more so than the Harvards and the Columbias of the world, are the foot soldiers of training people for different skills in a changing job market from technology and globalization. I do think, to your other point, we need to do more to support work. The earned income tax credit in the U.S. was originally envisioned as a work support program. It is primarily today a family support program. Uh, significant uh, benefits in the earned income tax credit occur, accrue to people with children. To me, we need to make uh, single benefits and childless benefits much more generous to encourage work as an alternative to an idea of universal basic income. So those are examples of ways to concretely promote work. Uh, they're not free. Uh, to do either of these requires expenditures, and I talk about ways in the book to pay for it, but they're a heck of a lot uh, less costly than some of the um, less work-oriented schemes that are being discussed today. Oh, that's super interesting. Um, 
I want to ask about businesses. You have towards the end of the book, a, a, a great chapter about looking at things businesses can do. And I thought it was particularly great because I mentioned I'm from Rochester, New York, which you feature uh, talking particularly about George Eastman and opening up the chapter. He was the founder of Eastman Kodak, the, uh, and, you know, very early in uh, showing how to process film. And he funded MIT, he funded the University of Rochester, he funded, uh, you know, many philanthropic af- uh, activities, the hospitals and other things in Rochester. And, you know, uh, certainly uh, uh, you emphasize this was very admirable. Uh, today's corporate executives and leaders, you know, seem to have a mix of things. Are they doing it wrong? Like, how is George Eastman a better example than some of what we see today? Well, it's an interesting question because to me, what makes George Eastman an interesting case is not his personal generosity, although it was very, very significant. And indeed, the gifts of the beautiful neoclassical buildings at MIT were anonymous. They were given under the name Mr. Smith. Uh, when they were originally given. So he's a generous man. But the, the real issue with him is that he really understood that social support for business was critical to businesses' viability. In his case, that was the community of Rochester, where he uh, really focused a lot of his philanthropy, and more broadly on areas that were complementary to business. If I think of business today, a lot of business leaders I think take social support for the basic market system as as given. And I, I wrote a piece recently in the Atlantic you know, where I know <laughs> they haven't been talking about, to many people 30 and under then. Well, that's what I was about to say. I mean, if you talk to even business school students, so these aren't undergraduate political science students, they're about people who are studying finance and business school are skeptical uh, of the outcomes of mm-hmm. a capitalist business oriented economy. So I think businesses need to be more engaged there. Businesses also can solve a great many things in uh, partnerships with each other and with um, local educational institutions. I I use in the book the example of Pittsburgh as a place that did come together under business and philanthropic leadership to reinvent itself. The state of Massachusetts uh, did the same after the evisceration of mills uh, as an industry. So business leaders can play on the stage. And I I fear that in many companies, it's thought of simply as charity or philanthropy. Uh, I view it as more, not just a moral responsibility, but a very practical concern that the social fabric in which business is uh, embedded runs the risk of being torn. It's a definitely... uh you know, they're incredible fissures in our society. I wonder, uh, you speak about Adam Smith a lot in the book. We economists regard him as my, uh, you know, many people regard Shakespeare, uh, not simply have been so far ahead of his time, but just how enduring his contributions are. And you come up with so many examples in the book. I, I wonder if you could give a couple of them. And then after that, what do you think Adam Smith would see if he looked at us today? Well, it's a great question. You know, I, I think Smith uh, was absolutely foundational in economics. It's important to remind ourselves there wasn't an economics discipline in Smith's day. The Wealth of Nations mm-hmm. is published in 1776. Smith is a moral philosopher. 
But he wrote the book in large part as an attack on mercantilism, which was the dominant economic philosophy of his day. And sadly, that's not just an economic history observation. It's what economists like. You, you want to explain what explain to viewers yeah, who in, might in, not know in, what it is. in a mercantilist economy, the goal would be to accumulate uh, surpluses in international trade uh, and to increase the stock of gold and silver uh, that are available. And the, the problem that Smith saw with that is that he didn't see it as related to the true wealth of a nation, which was really the productivity of its people and their ability to consume writ large, he also saw mercantilist systems as favoring uh, the special few, state monopolies. He wrote a lot on the British East India Company as as something he really detested, and sovereigns at the expense of ordinary people. So you can think of Smith as wanting um, what my colleague Ned Phelps uh, in the economics department here calls uh, mass flourishing. He was not about just the sovereigns or protected um, monopolists. So the wealth of nations is very powerful uh, in that regard. And Smith um, doesn't use these exact words, but is very big on openness. Openness. I, of I don't want to. I don't want to hijack the conversation over to Russia. I just want to make a point and see what you think about it. I mean, in many ways, if you look at the economic regime Putin ran uh, over the last ten or fifteen years. He sort of learned the lesson that he wanted to have a war chest. He wanted to build up money in case he wanted to have a war in case he was cut off by the West. And he he actually ran a surpluses all the time in the government, very little government debt. I mean, last I looked it up, 15 or 20 percent of GDP. And they have, of course, reserves, as I think almost everyone knows by now, that the central bank has alone of $630 billion. They have a sovereign wealth fund with hundreds of billions of dollars and, you know, building up these uh, war chests for war. I mean, that, that, that was mercantilism. Part of the rationale was that you were, you were going to have a war and you wanted to operate things this way. And in, in, in some ways he's a modern day illustration of that. But he's also, um, proof of what Smith was concerned about, the prosperity of average people in Russia yes. is not where it could be. So oh, it may ab- be, absolutely. Yeah. So it may in Smith's day, it was about the British East India Company and a sovereign in Putin's time, it's Putin versus the people. But if you take ab- Smith's ab- of Russia, yes. Yeah, of average people. He's, he's, an, he's, an, he's an illustration of what Smith thought. Exactly, was exactly so. That's why these ideas are 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 in fact timeless. But you know, Smith wrote another book, uh, and he wrote it almost two decades before The Wealth of Nations, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And there's more Smith, the moral philosopher. He was at the time a tutor and a professor of moral philosophy. And in that book, he argued for something he called mutual sympathy. I think today we'd probably use words more like empathy. Uh, And he had in mind um, people being uh, all in. And and I think if I took the two books together, I could take two meanings of all in. The wealth of nations is about all in for me as an individual. I should be able to supply my skills in the labor market as an open competitive market. You could as an entrepreneur, however we want. The theory of moral sentiments is all in in the sense of we're all in this. So this is a a mass flourishing as a goal. 
Uh, and Enlightenment thinkers weren't um, weren't so different uh, in, in their views. So I think Smith has a lot to say to us. Now, what would he say today? You know, competition was the linchpin in the wealth of nations. So to understand arguments about the invisible hand and about the superiority of the system he um, elucidates requires a belief that the markets are competitive, that firms compete with each other in goods markets, capital markets are competitive, labor markets are competitive. And I think what he might say today is he might be concerned about the ability to compete. So I can't really say that I'm pro-competition if I haven't made sure that everybody has the ability to compete. That again goes back to the interventions in American history for education and, and training. And I think that's where Smith would uh, focus. You know, Smith was not laissez-faire even in his day. He argued for spending on public education as well as infrastructure. And I think a post-1776 view of those ideas would definitely capture today's bridges. I, I just want to say a lot of these ideas that we're hearing are in the book, uh, The Wall and the Bridge. And uh, the, viewer, the viewers can certainly hear a lot more about it uh, that way. Uh, I don't know if you come out and say this in the book, but I feel like you almost just said it now that Adam Smith would say, uh, you economists, have, you read one of my books, you were supposed to read them together, that they both had something to say. One, one was incomplete without the other. Is that really a th- uh, what you're saying in the book? It is. And I, I, a, a quick line on that would be that it's time to put the liberal back in neoliberalism. And, and I don't mean by liberal the way we often use it in this country. I mean classical liberalism of, of Adam Smith. And I, I do think he took that together. I do think he and other Enlightenment era figures saw this as a moral discussion as well as an economic discussion, which is why I recommended Ben Friedman's book early. Yeah, that's a marvelous book, too, by the way. My, ben Friedman's my, uh, my colleague. Um, so I'm going to just throw out another out-of-the-box question to you, which is uh, you write in the book that you, when you uh, went to Harvard University to be a graduate student, you list Ben Friedman, but also the late Marty Feldstein, uh, who was just an amazing uh, uh, scholar of public finance and a leader in American economics, and, and, and he passed away very recently. Um, what do you think um, he would say about the book? I don't know that you got to talk to him about it. He was your thesis advisor. Uh, you know, what did you get from him? What do you think he would have said? Uh, there, there's certainly a lot of us who remember Marty Feldstein is a very sharp thinker. And how would he have reacted? Well, you know, Marty was an absolutely central influence in my life as an economist, um, not just as a scholar, although he had considerable reputation there, but as an advisor, as a friend over many years. I still miss him uh, deeply. I think he would like the ideas in the book. You know, Marty at the National Bureau of Economic Research, when he was president of it, ran what he called pen factory tours. Now, for the viewers, you know, the pin factory is a critical example in Smith's book to illustrate gains from specialization and division of labor. Um, Feldstein's pin factory tours suggest to me that he wanted economists to talk to practical people. 
on, on more than one occasion when I was stuck on something, uh, he would say to me a couple of things. One, the solution probably lies in walking around and talking to people, not just sitting at your desk and trying to figure it out. That's, that's, a, that's an incredible insight from a scholar. Nothing could be truer that it's very hard to think of everything. I, I say this, oh. not just to viewers, but to students uh, who are listening well, to and, what and Professor Hubbard is saying. Yeah, the other piece of his advice that stuck with me, and I still give graduate students today, is be about the economy, not about the economics profession. So he said, if you, if you want to have an impact, pick big problems that matter and talk about them. Don't just look at what was in the American Economic Review last issue and do your take on that. And, and I think that advice is very powerful. And, and you know, going back to the Queen of England's question in the financial crisis, I think as a profession, we would have been more on top of the financial crisis if we were talking more to people in the real world of markets and commerce. And just as today, I think the more economists can talk to business people, workers, communities in disruption, it becomes easier to think about interventions that might help as opposed to thinking of things as academic exercises at our desk. It's back to Palestine's walking around. It's funny, you know, you say that because I think uh, what a lot of is sort of the excitement in the economics profession now would be in data science, uh, that there's certainly large fields being reshaped by this, but it's not really walking around. It's sort of relying on sometimes it's survey data, census data, and it's, it's, it's uh, very informative. It involves machine learning and all sorts of fascinating algorithms, but are you saying that, you know, there really needs to be more walking around there too? Uh, I am. I, I think that data science offers a lot of opportunities in economics and a, and a lot of disciplines. It is a way of distilling a lot of uh, micro information we might not have called, quote, data in the past, but we, we do today. So that's all good. But in order to generate your understanding of something and to even help you with generating hypotheses, Nothing is better, really, than walking around and, and, and talking to people. I, I just don't know a substitute for that. We're not terrific at it as a profession. We're very good at talking to each other at conferences, seminars, and so on. But I think practical exchanges are worth a lot. So, Glenn, um, I'm wondering if I can come back to uh, asking you really to sum up the major theme of your book. You said we really need to put the liberal back in neoliberalism that's been forgotten. And uh, another way we could frame it out of the uh, your discussion of Adam Smith is that Adam Smith, if he was here today, would say, read both my books. But can you, can you be as concrete as possible of what bridges you think we should have, what you should think we should be doing? And maybe after this, we'll come to uh, talking about what le- further lessons there are from what's going on in Europe uh, and what it will mean for walls and bridges and globalization. That's a great question. Putting the liberal back in neoliberalism implies taking both sides of Smith and realizing that growth and disruption are just flip sides of one another. And we can't simply celebrate the gains from a market economy without noticing, and that's an important word, noticing and doing something about the disruption. Bridges need to be in two camps. Uh, They need to either be preparing people to succeed in a disrupted world 
or reconnecting them when they're dropped off. And that is about community colleges. It's about work supports. Uh, it is about broad changes in our social insurance system and the way we treat communities. It is a way of noticing and doing things that's very different from Waltz. That's really putting liberal back in neoliberal. Well, that's, thank you for that answer. And uh, you're a very good speaker and I'm, uh, it's a terrific book. If you don't mind, I would like to take it a little bit to current events because it's really hard to talk about walls and bridges and globalization. And let me be, pick something really concrete and this is going too far, but you know, I, I think conceptually it's useful. Suppose China backs Russia uh, and we end up with kind of a new iron curtain around Russia and China, a trade from China, not just Russia, but China shrinks dramatically. It's a, a deglobalization shock. Would all the people who hated globalization think that was great because it unwinds all the competition and everything going on? Uh, would that be great? Or what kind of shock would, they, would people who think globalization is terrible face? Uh, I don't think they would think it would be great. I think it would be uh, an increase in prices and loss of variety of a lot of goods and services that people uh, enjoy. It is also a more dangerous world, implying a risk premium in assets and greater public expenditure. It's a hard problem because, you know, Russia isn't really a very well-integrated economy. It does sell commodities, not just energy, but nickel and palladium and aluminum and wheat in the world markets. But China is completely integrated into the global economy. I mean, for China to deglobalize would be a major hit uh, to the Chinese economy uh, and to the world economy. So I, I think we have to hope that doesn't happen. No, I, I, th I think it would be an absolute, even aside from the instability, and you raised a very good point of the risk premium, uh, I, I think the People can't even imagine what that would be uh, in terms of costs. I mean, I certainly, on the consumer side of things, uh, people take Walmart for granted or they get mad at Walmart for some reason or other. They take uh, a lot of these low-cost alternatives for, uh, for granted. They just have no clue of what the other side of things would be. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, very difficult question. Uh, in terms of, um, I want to ask about the sanctions that have been put on Russia, the financial sanctions, that's financial deglobalization. Do you think that's less important or, you know, for some reason you could still trade with Russia and China, but there'd be a lot you couldn't invest. They couldn't invest here. So there'd be kind of a permeable wall that allowed trade through, but didn't allow any finance. Would that not be so bad? Or what do you think the effects of that would be? I think it's very hard to do. I think the sanctions as currently implemented on the central bank and on the use of the SWIFT uh, messaging system that would go along with payments and transfers are having a devastating effect inside the Russian economy. That, that is absolutely happening. One problem, of course, is that energy is carved out. Uh, and so there's still uh, hard currency flows to Russia that can be used to finance uh, a number of things. So I think the sanctions are harsh. 
but could well be harsher. A question I have, just as Vladimir Putin has to decide what's his exit strategy in Ukraine, the West has to decide what's an exit strategy from sanctions. Uh, when are sanctions over? What What is a precondition? Are there any lasting implications? I think we're only beginning to have that discussion. I mean, I think that's a, a very, very important point I want to underscore Sanctions have not brought regime change in North Korea. They've not brought regime change in Venezuela, Iran, Cuba. We've had sanctions most of the last 60 years on Cuba. And we don't, you know, been brief periods of a little bit of trade. It hasn't changed things. Russia's this nuclear power. Do we want to cordon it off? Do, not just not just from an economic point of view, but in terms of global stability, is that is it really healthy? Is it really healthy? And I, I think you're exactly right that I mean, a lot of people say, well, we're gonna we're just gonna you know sat, keep bigger and bigger sanctions on them until Putin's dead. But that's you know that's not such a simple calculus. This isn't North Korea. It's a way way more important economy, geopolitically no, I, I, especially. No, I I completely agree with that. I, I do think that said that Europe probably was overly dependent on Russia for energy. Oh, and goodness, yes. Rethinking yes. About the European energy mix for security reasons and economic reasons. But I agree with you. We don't want to wall Russia off. Yeah. So what do you what do you think? Uh, what do you think? Uh, suppose, you know, what what do you think an exit strategy should be like? What would some examples of markers to bring down the, uh, the sanctions that are plausible uh, since you since you raised it. It's a, it's a really good question. I don't hear anybody asking it. Well, you know, it's a problem because I'm, I'm not sure, Ken, to be honest. So let's suppose President Putin um, declared victory and went home, if you use the old expression. So suppose he said the separatist uh, uh, areas in the east that had been the um, precursor mm. to the engagement here. I want those, and uh, you can have the rest of it. Is that is that enough at this point? I don't know. Uh, I, I think that it's just as he has a difficulty with the off-ramp, I, I don't think we have fully thought it through. And are we going to uh, impose the energy sanctions as well, that is blocking those payments, which would take even more um, – credit and currency away from Russia? Uh, I, I don't think we know. And of course, as with the other cases you mentioned, sanctions often fall on average people in an economy much more than the ruling class. Uh, the North Korean rulers have not seen their consumption fall as a result of sanctions. And my guess is Putin is doing fairly well too. So the question is really, do the sanctions give you enough political pressure at home? And history's not been kind to that. No, it is not. I mean, sanctions have not had regime change. I mean, it's sort of it's hard to predict going forward, but we can talk about before uh, there were there certainly very smart and knowledgeable people. I think of uh, Bill Browder, who wrote Red Notice, and Gary Kasparov, my friend, who's the former world chess champion, who've argued the problem with the sanctions in 2014 was they were half baked. You did not do nearly enough. You should have taken everything away. Um, but that, you know, I guess the part of the reason they might not have done that 
was the hope of it or the fear that if they were more extreme in their sanctions, they would have put Putin into a corner much more quickly. I mean, it's a it's a very delicate game politically in the West. You just can't have enough sanctions. And yet, it is. You know, how do we, how do we play yeah. this? It is, and I, I I agree with that concern, but I do think there's some hope, and it's this. When people say Russia couldn't live cut off, it, of course it could. It was called the Soviet Union. That was cut off from um, the modern economy for a very long time. The difference is this isn't 1970, and a lot of people in Russia are used to transactions in goods markets, in ideas, in financial markets that cross boundaries. And it's not obvious to me that there there wouldn't be substantial political pressure put to bear on Putin from very broad sanctions, but it is a gambit if we do it. No, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, uh, President Xi has pretty much, you know, tremendous power. Putin has tremendous power. And, you know, Henry Kissinger wrote this piece in Foreign Affairs, maybe it was a couple of years ago, uh, worrying, arguing that it's become harder to overthrow autocrats, harder to overthrow dictators, because they all have access to incredible spying technology that lets them uh, see potential opponents before their potential opponent even had the idea they were a potential opponent. And that's one of the reasons we, we just aren't seeing regime change. Of course, that's what we hope for. That, that would be an you know, an incredibly optimistic outcome to this. But uh, it's very difficult to know what might create that. There, It's not like there isn't pushback in Cuba. It's not like the Cubans don't know. But the police state's so powerful that uh, they, they can't get away from it. It's, uh, you know, I, I think when you're talking about the the wall and the bridge, we're really speaking about the unfortunately, shrinking space in which autocrats are not ruling. And how do we make sure we don't uh, come into that? I I guess I have, uh, well, I can't help but ask, are you concerned about the United States at all, about the politics becoming so paralyzed that we end up with a, a much more autocratic system, either on the left or the right? I am worried about that, Ken, because... Again, when I think about threats to growth, I'm not terrifically worried about the pace of science or economists' ability to talk about it. I'm very worried about our political process. And the more walls of protection we try to put up, the less growth we're going to have. And again, you know, going back to Ben's book, those stagnant societies are um, more suspicious, more racist, more anti-Semitic. Uh, more afraid of the other. And that's a breeding ground for authoritarianism. No, that's, uh, that's, that's, uh, that's very interesting. Um, so I, I, w- I want to, as we sort of move towards wrapping up in the next few minutes, uh, just say what an unusual book this is. Because, you know, if you, if you set out to write a book these days in political economy and you want to have a lot of people buy it, you either say, you know, that uh, uh, you either appeal very strongly to the left, uh, call it the New York Times reader, uh, or you appeal very strongly to the right and call it the Fox viewer. And those are big markets. You can sell a lot of books. 
And I, I can't I can't even think of an example. I'm sure I'm missing a dozen, uh, but I'm 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 sort of having trouble reaching for an example of where you know someone's tried to do something in the middle. I hope you don't end up like one of those people who grow up, you know, in some city where there are a lot of gangs and you didn't join one of the gangs, so they both sides beat you up. But if that does happen, and that may happen, I have to warn you, uh, you know, I, I think it's really great that you, you know, stock up for trying to ask, you know, where is their common ground? Uh, where can we make things better? You know, why are really, what are we really arguing about in these uh, economic issues? Well, I think it's really what economists need to do. Uh, everything I'm talking about in the book from an economic perspective is really right out at Econ 101. It's our standard answers, but delivered in a way that hopefully allows the center to flourish. You know, I actually think, and I'm not a politician, so this may be naive, but I think there's political gold in these hills in the sense that imagine a population that's been suffering from disruption that actually has tangible things offered to them rather than pithy promises. My guess is, I don't know if it's a, a Democrat or a Republican that takes that intervention and don't really care, that could actually make a difference. So I, wow, I well, remain we, Let's wrap up on that optimistic thought that there's gold in the center that would be a wonderful dream. And for those who want to dream it, uh, The Wall and the Bridge is a very important reading to start thinking about it. Thank you uh, so much to our viewers uh, for listening. Uh, thank you uh, to uh, my friend Glenn uh, for speaking about his book today. And uh, we hope you find a chance to react and think about these issues. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.